Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Aisha Hazarika, someone who really should have been on the show probably a few times before now. But the benefit of waiting is that longer view and the extra stories that are now contained within. And oh my God, has Aisha got some amazing stories, particularly about visiting Iraq, but especially about, if that's not a contradiction, the night of the 2015 election. That stuff will knock your socks off. That is full-on, fly-on-the-wall, HD detail. Oh, my God. I mean, obviously, if you're a, a Labour person, it's probably very distressing to listen to. Or cathartic now. It's been a few years. But my word, there's some amazing stuff in there. And some really great stuff about Harriet Harman and, and working for Harriet. And just... There's a load of stuff I didn't know about Aisha and how she became politicised and what her way into politics was and then where she effectively decided her Labour values were and where she places herself on the spectrum of politics. So there's a whole load of stuff, but the election stuff, my God, is amazing. Before we come on to more uh, about that, this wonderful interview with, with Aisha, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And a, a regular thread now is unusual places you've seen politicians or strange encounters with them. Now, Neil Kinnock's been cropping up a lot in these emails, but Richard has been in touch. He said, I was in South London during the local election campaign of 2002 when Jack Straw was doing some campaigning. I was there reporting on it for the local paper, and he was saying hello to people who were out shopping. I was hanging around on the edge of the group who were talking to him and noticed a man come up to him holding a large snake. Sure, that's what it was. He said uh, he was very friendly and shook Mr. Straw's hand and chatted with him about local issues. And because it was crowded and he had the snake on the other side of his body, Jack Straw did not see the snake. I remember being worried about what might happen, but it all passed off without incident. As Mr. Straw walked away, I remember catching the eye of a Labour Party staffer who looked at me and pulled a face as if to say, that was a bit hairy, eh? Not the snake, I imagine. Uh, he said, in the same job, I confronted Ken Livingstone with a series of political demands while dressed as a bear. And newspaper's mascot was a bear. Fair dues. When I interviewed Stephen Norris, he greeted me as someone he'd seen lots of times before. And I was a bit too embarrassed to tell him I'd never met him before. Oh, man. You know, the worst thing is, people who work in politics will know this fear, is when you first start knocking around in politics and you meet MPs and councillors, whatever. And then the second time, if you meet an MP, they go... Oh, we met before, haven't we? You go, oh my God, I only met this guy for like a second and he's remembered me. What an amazing person. Well, I must have made an impression on this MP. The worst thing is, you start to realise they say it to everyone. Because obviously they meet loads of people and they don't want to break hearts. I remember once someone saying to me, and I honestly can't remember who the politician was. They said, oh, we've met before, haven't we? I said, no, no, no. I said, it's the first time we met. They went, no, 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 we have. And obviously I only then realised, I should have just said, yes. 
But I, we hadn't. And I was, I was at the time, not, um, not experienced enough in politics or indeed life to just go, oh, yes, 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 we met before. And, and just, you know, go along with that strange conversation where actually neither of you have met before, but you're both pretending that you have for different reasons. Um, I, I'm sure this happens in other social settings, but in politics, you have to feel for politicians, I think, in those scenarios. And surely it's better for them to gamble and presume and be nice than go, who the hell are you? Anyway, you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any unusual or memorable encounters you've had with politicians. The political party, of course, has returned to the stage and I'm still getting lots of messages about the Anthony Scaramucci show, which was just out of this world because of him. Um, and uh, you can get tickets. Oh, firstly, thank you to those of you that take the time out of your busy lives to um, review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. If you can leave a star rating, if you can leave a written review, it really helps other people find the podcast. It can be your simple way of thanking the show for existing or thanking me for making it. Or just, you know, if you say something nice about it, it just helps spread the word. So if you could do that, be very grateful. Lots of messages about the Mooch episode. And the next live show is on Monday, the 6th of December. We're back at the Duchess now. The Duchess Theatre on Catherine Street in London's glittering West End with Jeremy Hunt, former Foreign Secretary, former Health Secretary, Chair of the Health and Social Care Committee, whose report on COVID was one of the most amazing pieces of scrutiny of recent government policy. And of course, the finalist, it's almost like it was the X Factor, the finalist in the 2019 Tory leadership contest, the man who almost stopped Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, Jeremy Hunt, Monday the 6th of December at 8pm at the Duchess Theatre in the West End. That is going to be very, very special. Two weeks later, talking of special, it's the Christmas special. So good to have these back. Live music from MP4, Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. That is on Monday the 20th of December. Then there's a break. And on Monday the 10th of January, a man who crops up on this show a lot, Neil Kinnock, former leader of the Labour Party, one of the most incredible individuals in, in British political history, will be joining me live on stage on the 10th of January. Loads more guests to be announced next year. Always check out my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford. I will always announce them on here and on there. Now, on to today's phenomenal guest, Aisha Hazarika. Her and I have a lot in common. Both worked for the Labour Party, both stand-up comedians, both do uh, the Edinburgh Festival. Last time I was on Have I Got News For You was with Aisha. So, of course, I was going to ask about comedy and politics, but also Aisha studied law. Now, I've always had to think that people have always asked me about, at what point did you decide to effectively major on comedy? And, um, well, I don't know. <laughs> Not everyone thinks that I do, if you see some of my Twitter mentions. But um, it's interesting for people to go, oh, well, you could have chosen one or the other and what lay behind that decision. With Aisha, um, I presumed actually in a way she had, she had three choices, whether it was law, comedy or politics. And I asked her whether she ever had a preference and whether she ever had a, a plan about which road she would take. So interestingly, I didn't really end up coming to politics until much later in my life. And I think there's like a number of reasons for that. I think growing up, in an immigrant household the sort of the kind of thinking was that politics was just not for us that like you, you know we were allowed to be in this country 
keep your head down, either be a doctor, a lawyer or an accountant, or if you really fail in life, maybe a dentist, like if things go really, really badly for you sort of thing. Like that is like the Indian dream, basically. <laughs> so just basically keep your head down. Definitely you've got no right to have a political opinion. You've got no right to have a conversation about how this country is run. So, you know, I did not grow up in a political household at all. So the idea of getting in pol- involved in politics really never entered my mind. I was also very interested in politics and my mum and dad really brought us up to to know what was going on in politics. So um, we used to go up to the north of Scotland to Aviemore every holiday. It was like, I mean, Aviemore is a lovely place, but if you go all the time, it's really important. It's a very long car journey. And on the car journey, we would play like name the cabinet minister. Like that is how geeky my parents were about um but but I didn't really sort of think right I'm gonna have a career in politics my mum was like don't be ridiculous like politics is you know particularly the Labour Party was like it's not a place for sort of a Muslim girl from Glasgow like you know don't be ridiculous and under Jeremy Corbyn it wasn't a place for somebody like me (laughs) oh the irony so I think you know I was quite confused but I wanted to what I wanted to do I really wanted to study English at university but because my parents are that Indian cliche trope which is like you know you can be anything you want in the world doctor lawyer I mean that was literally like just be a profession and when I was at university I didn't like feel massively massively political it was only when I became a civil servant which was in 1997 and it was sort of a couple of months after Tony Blair's landslide victory and I joined the government information communication service so it's like the kind of press arm of the civil service and I joined the press office of the ministry of agriculture and I sort of worked my way across many many departments so I got like a really close hand experience of working with I suppose new labour ministers right at the start of the Blair government and there was this real optimism about you know the country Matt you'll remember it and again I wasn't really political at all as a civil servant I wasn't supposed to be political I knew where the the lines were but I was where I just found myself agreeing apart from sort of Iraq war I did find myself agreeing violently with most things that the ministers were doing that I was working with because a lot of civil servants told me stories of what it was like working under the outgoing Tory administration. And it was like an absolute nightmare. And every day was like a sort of war of attrition. And it was like stuff going wrong all the time and like bad decisions. And it was like, and but I had this totally different experience with the beginning of, of a Labour government, you know, introducing great policies, loads of funding for things. I was working at the Department of Trade and Industry, you know, new sweeping laws on flexible working, maternity rights, paid paternity rights for the first time. When I was at the Home Office, I worked with Paul Boateng and Jack Straw when they did that McPherson inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which established this concept of institutional racism, which has now, of course, been kind of denied by the current administration. So I'm working on this big stuff, Matt, stuff which I'm really agreeing with stuff which really aligns with my values. And I suddenly sort of had this moment and I thought, I think I'm political and I think I'm with these guys. <laughs> and I had a very good relationship with Patricia Hewitt particularly and her special advisors. And I got to do this stint in Downing Street where I went in and did like a sort of um, 
you did a stint for like a couple of months and I just loved it it was a really really busy time loved it and um I sort of kind of caught the eye a bit of like Kate Garvey who was Tony Blair's real right-hand woman she was like his gatekeeper she wasn't didn't just look after his diary she was just like a real sounding board for him and she and I got on really well and she was like you've you've got to, you've got to you've got to you've got to you've got to be political I should I can see that's where your heart is and there were some other great special advisors a guy called Jim Godfrey who worked for Patricia Hewitt um at the time as well was a great champion of mine and then I'd started to do a lot of stand-up at this point and I was really enjoying doing that. And I just thought, yeah, I just do what I could feel myself becoming more political. I didn't want to compromise my position as a civil servant. And then Kate Carvey gets in contact and goes, why don't you leave? And why don't you come and work for Tony in the 2005 general election campaign? And without even thinking twice, Matt, even though it meant I'd be leaving my job in the civil service, I just like in an absolute heartbeat, I was like, yes, 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 because I just knew this was going to be the most exciting thing. And when I'd been a civil servant, when like the 2001 election happened and I watched everybody go off to sort of do battle in the general election. And that is when you have like downtime as a civil servant because you're in Perda. You can't do anything. You obviously can't be politically active. You basically, the civil service just goes into like a sort of like, you know, a kind of a semi-coma for the election period. And I was seeing all these people I knew um, who were special advisors and who were political, just like having the most amazing adventures on the campaign trail. And there was part of me which is like, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to have a piece of that. So that's ended that's So that is, and I kind of went on a journey with my politics. And I think I felt like it was a good it was a good journey because it was in, it was entirely my own discovery and my lived experience of working with just really good Labour politicians and really good Labour ministers and having a very good experience as a civil servant, which I think is a real sign. I think if you're at war with your civil servants, you're not a good politician and you're not a good minister. So on the stand-up side, were you doing political comedy? Were you doing topical stuff or were you... What was sort of material were you doing at the time? Mainly knob gags. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so I would love to say, Matt, that I blazed a trail on the open mic circuit with my biting satire. Um, it was like, I don't know, I just, I think, like, I don't know if you heard this when you started doing stand-up. I sort of, um, I kind of, I think, mimicked what I thought a stand-up comedian was like just having watched like mainly loads of American men and, and British men do comedy. So, I mean, at one point I thought I should probably come on and do like wanking and Star Wars gags. Because, like, oh man. Because that was like the, so I think at the beginning when I first started, I just did like really quite rude material <laughs> because I, all the, the very few female acts I saw, you know, there was almost quite a pressure on women. And also it was that period in the 90s when I started doing it in the early 90s. Um, no, no, it was kind of like uh, like late 90s. It was quite, you know, the Ladette culture. And it was all sort of like for the few women that were on the scene, there weren't that many women on the scene. Everyone had to be really bawdy and really blue and do loads of like cock jokes and stuff like that. So I would like sort of ball out this kind of quite like, posh beige scottish glaswegian woman and sort of like and the worst thing was honestly matt the worst thing was right i got i got spotted by some tv product producer guy and he was like you're really funny 
come I'm doing this late night uh, comedy thing on BBC two for like sort of Asian comedians we have loads of Asian artists it's gonna be like a late night show but for kind of Asian people I was like oh my god count me in that's gonna be amazing and I told my parents and because my parents are Asian they cannot keep anything to themselves so like the bat sign went out oh, to no. literally the entire like asian community of scotland and mm. and the north of england and like my dad told everyone in his surgery literally everybody in his surgery all the receptionists told everybody and everybody tuned in to watch me at 11 30 on, on bbc2 and it was just it was like seven minutes of absolute filth so what, what was it stand-up you were doing yeah it was like stand-up it was awful it was all about like, <laughs> just like loads of stuff about vibrators vibrator was i was like yeah it was so, and i just like watching the color drain from my parents face oh, as they watch it i'm watching their face and they've told literally the whole of like the West of Scotland that like I'm doing this thing and they're so proud of me. And my dad was so angry and ashamed that he did the most, the weird thing was he did the most British thing ever. He couldn't speak to me. So he wrote me a strongly worded letter. No like, way. He sort, of, he sort of wrote me a kind of, you know, dear Aisha, we did not come to this country to have our good name humiliated on national television. So at the start, it was like, so when I started my comedy, it was very stressful. Was, and my parents were absolutely mortified. And my entire, like, community, the Assamese community in Scotland was, like, totally mortified. Um, it was just mortification all round, basically. <laughs> it's such a good observation, that. I never thought of that before. But when you start, you do feel like you've got to be kind of, it, not in your face, but, like, it wasn't a time to do subtle comedy then. You did have to sort of like rooms were a lot rowdy. You did have to kind of so you ended yeah. up doing material that was like like you say. I used to do stuff that like doesn't really reflect what I thought was funny or who I am. But like you just like well this is what comedians do. So you got to go out there and be kind of not confrontational, but yeah, certainly stuff like you sort of like yeah, you wouldn't you want your parents to see. No, and it's as you say, it's it's quite brat. It was all kind of all quite brash at that time, and like bang, bang, bang. But the best advice I got actually was the guy who used to run the comedy store, Dom, and I did a um, I did like a five minute. And look, my set was 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 pretty well received because it was like really bawdy and it was pretty, it was funny. It was just very not me. And he was he took me aside afterwards and he said, "Look, you did well out there, but." I don't think this is you. And he's like, you know, when you come on stage, I as a punter, I'm just really curious about why someone like you is on stage because you look totally different. We just basically had like eight white dudes, like, you know, being very aggressive. And suddenly you come out as this kind of, you know, small Asian woman and you're like, I want with a Glaswegian accent. He was like, I want to know your story. Like, who are you? Why are you on this stage? And then as soon as he said that, I sort of said to him, am I allowed to, to talk about that stuff. And he's like, of course you are. You're allowed to talk about whatever you want. And he gave me such good advice. He said, look, the best comedy is authentic. Like if you try and do a joke, which is not in your voice, it might be a really, really funny joke, but the audience know it's not really married to you as a person. And I think that's such good advice in every like form of communication, you know, be authentic. And when I then went into politics and was like writing jokes for um, politicians, which I'm sure we'll come on to, I always remember those words and I always used to say to them, you can't just 
ringing for a joke. You know, I'd sometimes get text messages from Gordon's team of various people going, could you text in a joke? And it's like, it just doesn't work like that. A, yes. a good joke has got to feel like it is real, like that person ha has genuinely thought that in that moment and it's right for their voice and for where their politics are or for where their values are and all that sort of stuff. So I thought that was excellent advice from, from the Comedy Store guy. And did you want to be a stand-up comedian? At that point, did you think that's where you wanted your career to go? I I think I never quite knew where I wanted my career to go. I mean, I still don't in, in many ways. <laughs> I still feel like I'm figuring it out. And, you know, you know, some people are like, what's your grand plan? And you're like, just to try and get washed and dressed and yeah. out the house on time. And I think I quite liked having, I think I've always quite liked having a bit of a portfolio career. So I found that what I really liked about, I did always want to do comedy, always, always, always. I'd always had this absolute fascination with it. But again, just hadn't seen anyone that looked like, so I just didn't think someone like me could do it. Um, and then when I found out, like, I, I was allowed to do it and I could get on the stage and, you know, this was a thing that I could do. I really, really loved it. And I dedicated a lot of time to it. But I did also love working in government and I did love being around politics and, and Westminster. So for me, doing the two things were like a very good balance for each other. Because if I had a really, really bad day at work, which was like frequent, particularly because I kind of moved up the ladder. And by the time I was actually doing a lot of stand up, I was also like chief press secretary to Patricia Hewitt, who was the secretary of state for the Department of Trade and Industry. So it was quite a full on day job. You know, I was yeah. briefing journalists all the time. You know, I was going over to the House of Commons all the time, going on a lot of foreign trips with Patricia Hewitt. You know, she and I were very, very close. So by day, it had this quite important job. But if anything ever went wrong or had a bad day, instead of just going to the pub and like sinking loads of like glasses of wine and bitching and moaning about work, which I used to do, I'd get on the road and go out and do my stand-up. So I'd be doing stand-up two, three, you know, nights a week, but not often in London, going off to Birmingham, Manchester, wherever. And that in itself was so terrifying and so all-consuming. I just left all the struggles of the day behind me. And all I had to focus on was trying to make this room full of people laugh and not humiliate myself in front of these other like more established comedians and so I completely forgot about work but then if I had a bad gig again the next day I'd be so <laughs> absorbed in like my kind of political and like government stuff I wouldn't really I'd forget about it so I felt like it was quite good for my brain it was quite good I mean I was knackered a lot of the time but yeah. I thought the kind of contrast was really good and was it ever I mean, these days, if you were doing that now with social media, there'd be, like, clips of you everywhere. It'd be all over Guido, you know, spad to stand-up and all this sort of thing. There'd be outrage about what material you were doing. Did you ever get even the, the slightest coverage? Was there ever a diary story that, you know, senior civil servant at the DTI is moonlighting as a stand-up? <laughs> it did start to get a little bit of um, traction. I mean, I'm so glad social media did not exist at that time, Matt. So, so glad. Um, because you could have that sort of anonymity and sort of just do what, do what you wanted. I think I was very lucky because my actual, my civil servant bosses were very supportive and Patricia Hewitt and all the political people were, were very, very um, supportive. The only time it started to kind of creep in was when, uh, when it was announced that I was going to become a special advisor and that I was going to work for Harriet Harman. And then there were some diary stories. So I remember a new, I remember going down to my first ever party conference. I think it was Brighton. Um, I can't remember, Brighton or Bournemouth. And 
the New Statesman in its diary section at the back, I saw someone reading it on the train. And it was like, oh, Patricia Hewitt has a, a new, uh, Harriet Harman has a new special advisor. And Harriet had just become deputy leader of the Labour Party. And John um, Prescott, her predecessor, famously did that last speech at conference. And it was like really knockabout. And he was famed. It was almost like stand up. Like John yeah. would just like, you know, take the piss out of everybody. And it was quite like end of the pier. It was like, you know, end of the season. Everyone went off on a real hurrah. And somebody had written this really excoriating piece about how A, Harriet Harman was the new deputy leader. And remember, she won by an absolute whisker. Everyone yes. had thought Alan Johnson was going to win. And everybody was incredibly disappointed that it was Harriet Harman and not Alan Johnson. Um, so, you know, there's so much pressure. And then we see this article and it's like, oh, my God, it's like bad enough that Harriet Harman's like won the deputy leadership. She's going to have to try and recreate the moment of comedy that John Prescott, I mean, She's got this. Uh, she's got this stand-up. Who's a, a, a the special advisor? Who's a stand-up? But my God, have they got their work cut out for them? So it was just like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> just like the pressure, the pressure. The, and I think like, so we just had to have so we like so right from the beginning. I had to say to Harriet, right, you've got to get in with some of these jokes. You've got you've got to do them. And she was like, I don't really do jokes. I was like, you're going to have to. And at the beginning, what was so interesting about Harriet is that, again, a lot of this is a big misconception. It's funny how people, anyone can be funny, right, Matt? If yes. Anybody, provided it's authentic. And this is what loops back to what we were saying earlier. But when I first started working with Harriet, she was very, like, she very much subscribed to this view that women comedian, women comedian, women politicians shouldn't really venture into doing comedy that um that comedy was very much the jokes were very much the preserve of male politicians um that it was really high risk for women to do yeah. and also i think there was a sort of i don't know poor face is the right word but i think for a lot of politicians like harriet very much on the left very progressive very into equality she was always a bit like well i kind of feel bad because there's always someone who's the butt of the joke and my whole like raison d'etre in politics is to like stand up for the butts in society which sounds kind of weird <laughs> i like big butts no <laughs> um, but so she, i remember her giving me quite a lecture going aisha i don't think that jokes are the way forward for a serious female politician such as myself who has been steeped in equality and fighting for the underdog. And I said, okay, just try doing a joke and see how you go. Did a joke, got huge rounds of applause. She's like, more, give me more jokes. <laughs> give me more jokes. Amazing. So obviously, you know, as you said earlier, you weren't that political growing up, although you were politically aware, you, you, almost from a sort of general knowledge point of view, you, you, you were aware of who the cabinet were and stuff. Once you then realise, post-97, that you're Labour... Where do you then start to place yourself on the on the Labour spectrum from new to old? Where did you feel most comfortable? Oh, that's a that's a good question. So I very much, I suppose, had my political, you know, kind of awakening around a very, very much a new Labour government, you know, watching people like Alistair Campbell in, in close quarters, Patricia. Hewitt, Alan Johnson, you know, Jackie Smith working with lots of sort of these great um, politicians. But I never felt like 
from the beginning, I was more, I think, in awe of just the scale of the operation. And yeah, I think we forget, like in the beginning, from 1997, I reckon really until the Iraq war, Labour was really good at being in government, really good. Like they had one big, so they proved they were really good at winning. They were really good at the sort of logistics and the, the politics of governing. And so I think at the beginning, I was quite we just impressed by the sheer skill, the sort of confidence, the professionalism of the whole new Labour operation. So I think at the beginning, I was like, this is really impressive because I had sort of grown up, you know, with Labour, particularly in the West of Scotland, being, you know, very dominant, but quite looking quite shambolic and <laughs> bit shouty, yeah. bit drunk, bit sort of, you know. <laughs> sort of old fashioned. Old, yeah, 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 that kind of thing. I don't know, an egg stain down the front of the tie, like you know that kind of thing, that sort of thing, crumpled, but 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 there, but there, mm. and then suddenly, you know, it new labour right at the beginning, it was sort of like a kind of, it was like a real sort of, it was quite corporate. They were quite corporate. All the advisors were really young and slick and and clever. And I I had a short period in business where I went to work for um the the global chairman of EMI Records before I came in to, so I left the DTI, did this sort of two years in business and then came in as a special advisor. And I remember coming from this business environment, a very, very high-end business, you know, like international music, very glamorous, but really slick as well. And I remember coming into sort of, um, I remember sort of thinking, you know, some of this reminds me of, of labor, like it, the slickness of it and the sort of corporate, it was almost like a sort of corporate identity. But then when I became a special advisor and I was actually working on devising policy myself with Harriet Harman, and I was the special advisor for, I did all her media stuff, but I did uh, women and equality issues. And we were drafting the Equality Act, the 2010 Equality Act, which ended up becoming this big landmark piece of legislation. And I, I think I sort of then kind of shifted, I think, where I saw myself on the spectrum, because I, there was lots of sort of policies that I wanted to enact, you know, with Harriet. And they, they were not hugely radical policy ideas. They're all seen as, you know, completely normal and sensible things now, like transparency around gender pay, for example, um, you know, making sure that you know we had single sex spaces in the equality act um you know trying to ensure that there was a sort of level playing field across all the different uh, different protected characteristics so there wasn't like a hierarchy and you know all this kind of stuff and making sure that older people got like weren't discriminated in public services and things so like all really really good good stuff um we also wanted to put things like um strengthen the trade union um, workers' rights and stuff like that. So, for example, if you were, um, let's say me as a, as a Muslim woman, I can get discriminated on two counts as a woman. And so I can get discriminated against due to my sex. I can also get discriminated on my um, ethnicity and my uh, racial background and my religious background. You know, 
we wanted to be able to sort of combine those so you could bring a combined claim and discrimination instead of having to. So we, we had all this stuff, which, which didn't seem that radical to us. But there were lots of forces at the time within the sort of government, a Labour government, who were just very, very um, kind of resistant to all of this stuff and saying, no, 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 you have to like, everything we do, that's too much, it's going to scare the CBI, we've given too much to the unions, we've got to like just now think about, we've got to think about business, we've got to think about the CBI. And I do think my own experiences of trying to craft policy at that point, Matt, I think after, towards the tail end, I think Labour did sort of lose its way. And I know that I was considered, some, I mean, I was considered, Harry and I were considered kind of mad lefties. <laughs> We were, we were like, so honestly, I'm going to tell you the story, right? You know, the word class now is used everywhere. Like class is the big issue of the day, right? You know, in terms of people, like, in fact, let's not talk about race or sex anymore. It's all about class. We worked on this project with this fantastic um, professor of sort of inequality and, and like socioeconomics, professor, Sir Professor John Hills. And Harriet was Minister for Equality at the time. And she asked him to do this big study, which is basically tracking inequality and social mobility. And he had like tracked people for decades. He was like the absolute master. He sadly like died um, recently. Brilliant, brilliant man. So we did this big piece of research, which basically is classic labor research. It's basically saying your life chances are pretty much determined by the age of two. If you want to really change people's lives around early intervention makes a huge, huge difference. The redistribution of wealth through things like tax credits, particularly putting it in the in the pocket of mothers who are, you know, that's the kind of thing which really, really helps sort of, you know, fight inequality and stuff. So I remember us doing this press release and we were doing a dinner at the uh, TUC conference. So what would normally happen is you would sort of uh, brief the, the speech even though the dinner was happening at like eight o'clock on the sort of, let's say the Tuesday night, I would brief all the papers on Tuesday afternoon so that they were all ready with, to have to report it the next day. And the, the top line of the press release and the top line of Harriet's speech was, uh, you know, big study finds that, you know, class is, is a huge factor in inequality and life chances are determined by the age of two and um, a, a really bright working class child and um, even though at the age of two they might be really really advanced compared to a more middle class uh, child that's you know that's less bright than them that middle class child will, will leapfrog them anyway we did this big big briefing around the word class briefed out to everybody left right and center and suddenly get this call from like the number 10 head honcho and he's like you can't say that and I'm like, which, which bit can't we say? And they're like, class, we, we, don't, we don't do class. We don't, we don't talk about, we don't really talk about class. And I was like, what do you mean we don't talk about class? We're like the Labour Party. Uh, I was brought up in Coatbridge in the outskirts of Glasgow, what kind of class was everything. And they were like, no, 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 no. We just literally, like, it's just not what we do. You can talk about socioeconomic disadvantage. You can basically use a really wonky word, but you can't use the word that, 
everyone says. So it was just stuff like that. And we got into so much trouble for it. And they made, I think they made me rebrief everybody. And they basically put out some kind of line saying, we, that's not. And then the mad thing was the story the next day wasn't this great finding about early intervention, which backed up things like Sure Start and a lot of the good work we had done. The whole thing was Harmon gets slapped down for, for using the word class. And it was things like that where I just thought, this is a bit weird that we do seem to have kind of become a bit frightened of our shadow. So I think I was seen as I so I think my spectrum went from probably being quite in awe of the shininess and the slickness of new labor to becoming a little bit like, actually, I think we've now lost our, our way. And I think we, so I think, but I think where I ended up was we have to have the, professionalism of the the new labor machine when it was at its Rolls Royce best but we also have to have the radicalism that that we should always have as a labor party which is being at the vanguard pushing ideas which by the way are not mad ideas often the ideas which are like you like internal people can think are mad are actually where the the public is I mean I'll just give you one other example Matt I remember doing a national policy forum um gathering and this is where the sort of man the final bits of the manifesto really get hustled over trade unions and the delegates and the CLP sort of come saying right this is what we want the government goes in or the the, the leaders offices and all the advisors go in saying no this is what we want and you kind of you know haggle it out and and I just remember being sort of briefed um, by some of the powers that be saying, look, we've all just got to go in. And this is actually just before the 2010 general election campaign. We've all got to go in and just hold our line on everything. We cannot concede anything to the trade unions. We cannot concede anything to our like, you know, CLP delegates. And so that was the kind of mantra we all went with. But actually a lot of the things that, the, the other side were calling for were not insane things Matt they were things which are now stuff we all want to fight for so back in 2010 you know a lot of um CLPs but also a lot of trade unions particularly from the construction side were saying you've got to you've got to make housing like an absolutely huge huge issue We've got to be doing much more on not just like, you know, make we've got to redefine what afford, affordable housing is. Um, we were also having, you know, conversations about, um, you know, the, the, the labour market and, you know, just saying, look, you know, minimum wage, we've got to make sure it's all being enforced. On my side of things, there were loads of great women from the trade union movement saying, look, you've got to shine a light on gender pay inequality. Like this is a huge, huge sort of problem. But then you would go back and say, right, can we can we have any movement on this stuff? And it was like, no, 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 no. I remember being in a room about the gender pay gap and just being shouted at by lots of senior politicians and their advisors going, do not give an inch on the gender pay gap. Do not give an inch. I was thinking, I can't, this is like, this is what why so I think we did become very very frightened of I think what stuff we knew we kind of wanted to do but I think because we had been in power for such a long time and we had really loved being in power obviously and we'd been pretty good at being in power 
I think we became so terrified about losing power that we just thought the, the safer we played it, the higher our chances of, of, of being saved, but that didn't work. On the class thing, why were they so worried about the word class at that point? And was it anything to do with, did they just think maybe Harriet's not the right messenger for that? Was that part of the um, anxiety? Or was it a wider malaise about using that word? I think it was a wider malaise about using that word because I think it frightened them because they thought it would evoke memories of the Labour Party, you know, in the 1980s and class war. I think that's why they were frightened. And also, like, the new Labour project had very much sent out a message saying we're different from what's gone before. We're not going to do class war. You know, we're, we're in intensely relaxed about people getting really rich as long as they pay their taxes and stuff. So that, I think, felt like quite, quite retro. But I think that was sort of wrong because I think the mood in the where the public were was that people were talking about class. And we know that to be true because this is it's an issue that kind of rages today. And I think the mistake that was made was I think they felt that if we started talking about class, it would kind of blow the whole thing up again. And they'd sort of got a lid on, on, on how people saw the, the Labour Party. But I think the other problem was it wasn't just, you know, to your first point in that question about Harriet. I think another problem was it wasn't just that it was like Harriet who was seen as not being really like the best narrator on class a lot of the New Labour project, rightly or wrongly, because there were working class people in the New Labour project. I mean, just look at Alan Johnson, for, for example, or like, you know, David Blunkett's backstory. I mean, most people did not come from a super privileged background. But because of perhaps this thing I talked about earlier, this kind of quite corporate identity, there was a view that Labour was quite affluent and was just very super slick and maybe you know it just didn't it labor new labor probably to a lot of people was called for kind of middle class or aspirant middle class quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So that was part of the, the, the issue. I can, I can totally see that. And, and also, whenever we're judging that period in Labour history, it's so easy to do it in retrospect and, and, and all those things are really easy. But obviously, that, that project was forged in the defeats 
of the 1980s, the paranoia about losing elections. You know, it, even it's really easy to look back now and go, you were sitting on two landslides. You, you were masters of the universe, but equally, they didn't necessarily feel like that. Paranoid, they thought it would all end tomorrow. You mentioned Iraq a couple of times. Was that a big deal for you? Um, it, it was, and um, I felt very... I felt very conflicted about it because I was actually, I ended up having quite an interesting intersection with all the Iraq stuff because I had done this stint in, in the number, in number 10 and had got on quite well. And when um, the Iraq war happened and the fallout, they had actually asked me to come back and work in the dining street press office, not necessarily to do Iraq stuff, but just, there was so much going on, they just needed extra capacity. And so I, I did it, but I had also gone on that march and I had never ever gone on a march ever before in my life. But I, I think even my parents and my parents' friends who were not like super left-wing at all, everybody, particularly I think if you're from a Muslim background just felt really deeply uncomfortable about it. Because we just, you know, we kind of knew how the story was going to end. I think when you feel you have some kind of skin in the game, literally, like brown skin in the game, you you, you do think, God, this is just, you know, this is awful and it, it's just not going to end. It's just not going to end particularly well. Um, but then, so I did feel convicted. I did not feel that Tony Blair, I didn't buy the argument that he was like willfully just like, you know, taking the country into some huge disaster. I think he genuinely at the time believed he was doing the right thing. And and these 9-11 retrospectives, because of course we've just had the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and we've had the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So you've got these two big flashpoints that have really revived all those memories for lots of people in a way the withdrawal from Afghanistan botched is the sort of full cycle of what a lot of people were worried about 20 years ago in terms of Iraq. What we've just seen in terms of how it's ended has confirmed a lot of people's views that, look, I told you so, we said this was going to happen. But then when I was watching a lot of the documentaries around 20 years remembering 9-11 and you watching the kind of pictures of like George Bush's face when he hears the news watching the footage of the horrific footage of the Twin Towers, everybody having that vivid flashback to where they were, how that felt, the fear, the terror. You know, I think it reminded me of the horror of that moment. And I can sort of understand in some ways why Tony Blair wanted to show such solidarity with America. It wasn't just, oh my goodness, he was being a lapdog. And I, I think he was a bit seduced by the fact that Suddenly, you know, he's in this very interesting position, which nobody ever thought a Labour a Labour leader would ever, ever be in that position on the world stage. So I get some of that. But I think he did think it was the right thing at the time. But I think he was kind of blinded by his sort of moral certainty of it. But, but then, interestingly, I ended up being sent to Iraq when I was a civil As punishment. <laughs> Yeah, for going on that march. <laughs> they were like, we've got, yeah, you're going to go and entertain the troops. I had this, un I had this mad experience when I was a civil servant. So the war, the war had ended. Da -da -da -da, and it's like, there was this big conversation about 
what's going to happen about businesses going out there? Because, of course, there were all these work to be done and all this rebuilding to be done in Iraq. And, you know, let's just be honest, a lot of British businesses were like, hello, I want to get me some of that. So the DTI had to facilitate, like, how businesses were going to operate out there. So it was decided that the, the, it was really important for um, a woman to be out there, but the press secretary, the, the, uh, for the Patricia Hewitt, the, the Secretary of State for Business to go out there. So we're in this meeting and then they decided they needed somebody to go and do a recce ahead of it. And everyone turns to me. So I get sent to Iraq by myself. Oh, my God. It was the te- it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done, and I've done the stand in Glasgow, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it was so terrible. So the first thing was, I must have been like in my god, I can't remember, I must have been like twenty seven or something. Have to go to the foreign office and get fitted for a Kevlar jacket. Wow, way. And then I get put on this plane, and I have to go out to Kuwait. And then I'm waiting for somebody from the foreign office to come and get me. And then I'm waiting for ages and then nobody comes. And I get this messaging or there's been some kind of like disaster on the the, the road from um, like in Iraq and someone's been killed. So like nobody can come out today. But they said, what we're going to do is we're going to try and get you on a flight. The original flight we're going to get you, we, that's not going to work. We're going to take you to a US army base we're going to try and get you on with a load of America. There's a whole bunch of American soldiers who are leaving from Kuwait today. And I'm like, um, okay. So I end up on this American. I have no idea. Nobody knows. Hardly anyone knows I'm out there. Like if something happened to me, oh, dear. Um, my kind of slightly hapless boss in the DTI is the only person. But she can't even remember her password to get into like the computer all the time. So I get to this American airbase. I'm surrounded with these like massive, like fuck off American soldiers going, hi man, can, can I help you? And I'm like, hello, um, I'm trying to get to Baghdad. <laughs> They're like in their like army fatigue. I've got a wheelie case with me. <laughs> like oh, I need And I'm just like, I'm the press secretary from the Department of Trade and Industry, blah, blah, blah. And then I spent like a day on this airbase and um, hung out with all these soldiers. It was so interesting. And then I have to like, I'm on, I'm literally on this plane about to take off. And then someone comes on and says, there's a foreign national on this plane. And I was like, uh, yep, that'll be me. And this guy's like, you got to get off this plane. And I was like, why? And he's like, because planes are getting shot at. And if this plane goes down and you're not an authorized American military personnel then we've got a massive issue on our hands so i end up just having to stay and we actually worked out fine i stayed another night in kuwait and then the next day actually the whole delegation arrived and we all went out together but it was fascinating and terrifying at the same time like when you arrived at the airport of baghdad they basically so there was not the dignitaries had to get in a helicopter the sort of hq all the stuff was one of Saddam Hussein's palaces which had now now been just turned into this massive HQ so there was like military work media work logistical work and they were like there's one road that connects the airport and this palace and it's now just like it's like a war zone like people are getting shot at sniped at bombs are going off so they were like we're gonna have to put uh, the, the key VIPs on a helicopter 
and the remaining people will have to take their chances and <gasps> like get on. <laughs> Literally, again, I was like, they were like, okay, there's there's five of you. There's only four spaces. Again, everybody turns oh, to man. me. And then the worst thing is they all got in the helicopter. Everyone's like, Godspeed, Godspeed. I'm like, yeah, thanks. And then when I get in the car, I've got a, hat, a metal Kevlar hat on. I've got my Kevlar jacket. They give me this device and they say, look, if, if we all get shot at and we all die, you have to put in this code because this will te- this will be this GPS blah blah and someone I was thinking I can't even work the timer in my video like the idea getting shot at I'm gonna be like it yeah, I'll just it was the most terrifying experience of my life we we go to the the palace it is amazing fascinating to see it's all gold everything was just gold everything just like toilets were gold everything was just gold it was mad and we spent like kind of a massive chunk of time there sort of sorting things out and then came back and I have to say I've never been so happy to just get to like Kuwait airport and get, and there was a bunch of people from number 10 and we were all going back together and just the relief on all our faces and I just thought I never ever want to go to Iraq ever 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 again and while look we did meet with people who said thank you for coming in this was a terrible regime terrible things sort of happened but my God, you know, anybody, you can't, you can't look at stuff like this in a sort of, you know, falsely heroic way until you've actually been out there and seen it your, your, yourself. It was, it was, it was frightening. It was properly, you just felt you could be shot. You could die at any moment. It was frightening. Have you got any photos from that trip? Do you know, I was looking for, I have got some, I have got one of me with Patricia Hewitt and uh, one of the other civil servants. I've just moved house. I think it's at the bottom of like a box full of crap right now, but I just look completely terrified. (laughs) (laughs) We shouldn't laugh really because it's it's so severe, but I guess because I'm trying to figure out your route in, obviously, because it's not as if you were a teenage radical and were going to branch meetings and reading the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist and the Communist Manifesto and stuff. You sort of come in from a civil service thing and then, you, you, and then you're finding out where in Labour you are. And Iraq obviously feels like a big moment, as well as your experience working for Harriet. You end up working for Ed Miliband. And I wonder if Iraq's one of those things that sort of push you towards him, where there's a kind of internal Labour opposition to Iraq that effectively coalesces around Ed Miliband in, in, the, in the fall of New Labour? That's a good, that's a good question. I don't, I, I don't know if... I don't know if Iraq was, like, the sort of single issue that made me uh, sort of think, ooh, Ed Miliband. I mean, I... Um, I mean, I had to be very neutral during that election campaign because I was working for Harriet Harman, who was acting leader. The only bit of intervention we did in that race as we put Diane Abbott on the ballot paper, Harriet nominated her. But we wanted to have a broad contest. By the way, just on this point, just the slightly tandem, it's really, really important. Everybody keeps like, so when when Jeremy Corbyn like ran and obviously did very, very um, well, everybody was like, we've never had a left person ever on the ballot paper. That's not true. We had Diane Abbott. And actually, where was the left support for a woman and a woman of colour in the twi- I mean, we put Diane Abbott, we did bad social engineering because we thought, you know, 
she was a voice that was worthy of, 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 of being in the contest to give the left somebody, but they didn't, I was just putting it out there, just putting it out there in terms of, um, um, so I didn't really get, I didn't get involved at all. I think the thing for, for me was that I do think that the reason why the party gravitated towards Ed and, and I always, you know, got on, you know, really well with Ed. I did get on well, David as well. I just felt that like, I think it was that, I think it was more the, uh, yeah, I think Iraq was a factor, but I think it was more the other stuff I talked about, which was kind of Labour just like, like kind of losing its its heart a bit and just kind of being quite, it's fear of losing power and it's fear of never acquiring power, hindering its cu- courage on, on things. And I think people felt that with Ed, you know, they were, you know, they would get a little yeah, well, they did. They did get a bit more of a shift to the, the left. And I think a lot of people wanted a bit, not like crazy to the left, but well, some people did, but I think the majority of people wanted a bit of a, <laughs> some people were way. <laughs> but did you ever feel that he could win in 2015? Probably not, but. I think so much, I think it was very tight up until the the campaign. I think the 2015 campaign is a really excellent example of how a short campaign can turn things. I think 2017 was also interesting from that because Corbyn did better. I know he didn't win, just in case anyone's out there. He won, he didn't, he really didn't, but... It, it, you know that was an interesting election because it, things did shift within the, that time constraint. Because some sometimes elections are you know pretty evident what's going to happen years before. So when when we started the short campaign for twenty fifteen, it did feel that not an outright win. Definitely the chances of a hung parliament and definitely the chances of some kind of deal with the Lib Dems was absolutely on the cards. And even though publicly we would never, ever say that, behind the scenes, we were absolutely, we had a team assembled ready. We had policy people literally going through every line of the Liberal Democrat uh, manifesto going, right, which are the bits that we could do business with? Which are the red lines we couldn't deal? You know, where, where do we have kind of alignment on these sort of things? And I do remember on the day of the um, election, you know, the you know, everybody thought it was going to be very, very tight. I remember Charlie Faulkner, um, you know, being tasked with ringing all the political editors saying, right, this is what, just so you know, get your facts straight, obviously with our narrative, this is what happens in the event of a hung parliament. These are the rules as we see it. This is This means that Ed Miliband would have you know primacy in terms of trying to be the first person to establish that those conversations with the liberal democrats this is how long um you know david cameron would have left in downing street these are the number of days kind of what they did with gordon brown in in 2010 when like gordon was bunkered in and sort of you know they were like no you've got to get out now you've got to get so all of that so they were and the political editors were very happy to take the call and there was definitely but I think the thing that changed it all, because I remember going to Milton Keynes at the beginning of the short campaign, which was one of those key marginal target seats, which we had to win. Flipping heck, Iraq, Milton Keynes. <laughs> I've been, I've, honestly, I've, been, I've, I've done them all. I really have done them all. Um, 
I'll have to tell you about my coal miners compensation tour. That was quite the um, that was quite the thing. Um, I really have seen it all in this job. Um, but like I just remember going to Milton Keynes and knocking on people's door, and people were like, "Yeah, I'm 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 pretty interested in the Labour Party actually. Yeah, I think I think I'm ready to give them a go." And we were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." We went back the final week of the short campaign and that advert had come out from the Conservatives about a coalition with the SNP and suddenly people were like, I've seen these adverts and I don't want all my money going to Scotland and you know, I'm cooling off the idea. I think I'm going to stick with what, 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 I, what I know. So in that final week, I was like, no, something has absolutely shifted. Those posters were had devastating effects for us in those key marginals, particularly in the southeast. Well, it turns out that the, the, the people of Milton Keynes perhaps were um, correct in their judgment about Alex Salmond, but that's perhaps a, a, a discussion <laughs> for another day. Um, when Ed leaves, I mean, it's always emotional. People, you know, when Gordon Brown leaves number 10, with Tony Blair's last conference speech, you know, so, so often our um, abiding memories of leaders is the manner of their departure. How emotional was that? Because even as someone who wasn't a big fan of Ed Miliband, I, I, I always find it hard when, you know, when Theresa May left and she got emotional, I was like, oh my God. And watching Ed Miliband was very difficult in 2015. And I remember them showing people crying in the room. I mean, that must have been very hard, a very hard thing to be at. It was, it was, look, the, that whole night, the night of the election was so horrific. I think it was just like the whole thing was so brutalizing. It was sort of like 13 hours of just abject pain, misery, and emotional brutality. Um, and does that 13 hours start with the exit poll? Oh my God, the exit poll, Matt. The ex. The- Jesus Christ. I'm literally having a flash. <laughs> I'm having a panic. <laughs> Oh, the exit poll, fucking hell, the exit poll. So we had done so much prep, right? Yeah. Ed done so much prep. We had prepped every single scenario for the exit poll because Harriet was first out the traps and I was with Harriet. We had prepped every scenario apart from the Conservatives winning a majority. <laughs> There's a really important lesson here for everybody listening to this podcast in yeah. life. Prepare for every eventuality. And just as we were going into Millbank to do to start doing the interviews, so it must have been like nine o'clock. I'm in a cab. Harriet's in a cab. Harriet rings me. She's like, "Just thinking, we what if there's a what if there's a conservative majority?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, we didn't really." And then we both went. I mean, that's, we've just been through all the figures. We've been through the polling. We've been through the. And then she's like, "Oh my god, do you think we do you think we should like do you think we should prep something?" And I was like. Yeah, we probably should. So we get we get to Millbank, and I'm like calling Ed's team, and I'm like, um, hi. Just thinking if we, and then everyone's like, don't don't even entertain the idea. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a hung parliament. We're just getting ready to start talking to the Lib Dems. That is where things are. That's where things are. Prepare for government. Da, 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 da. Yeah. We get to Millbank, and originally the BBC said, Harriet, could you be live on air so the camera is on you when? The exit pool drops. Now that had been arranged with the with the press office, and I was like, "No way!" And they were like, "I know we've you can't turn back. You, we've made a deal with the press office." I was like, "No, no, 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 no. She's not sitting live on air." 
and we're so glad we didn't do yes. that. So we ended up huddling and watching it on our phone in the basement of Millbank and watching that exit pull through. Honestly, Matt, just pin drop. And there's a lot of people in Millbank. Pin drop silence. Just the sound of jaws hitting the floor. And I just like looked at Harry, she just looked at me and we just went, fuck, the fuck do we see? And we, 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 phones are going mad at this point. Like we've literally got two and a half minutes to get her on air. Um, you know, her phone's going mad, my phone's going mad. Everyone's giving us different messages to say, like some of, some of Ed's team are just saying, deny it, say it's not true. You know, the Paddy Ashdown line, yeah. which I'll eat my hat. And then he had to eat like a massive, yeah. he had to chomp through a massive big fedora. <laughs> big lib- he had to eat one of Vince Cable's fedoras. That's what ended up happening. Um, <laughs> and, and then Harriet's like, I don't think I can just deny this. What if it's true? And that's half, so half of Ed seemed like, deny it, deny it, deny it. The other half of people are ringing us going, it's over. This is going to be a terrible sort of night. And so... We, I think we ended up just saying, look, it's still early. This is this is an exit poll. I mean, it's pretty worrying for us, but look, let's just see what let's just see what happens. That is the only line we had to hold. But it was horrific. And Matt, every hour brought fresh hell. You know, it was just horrendous. Every hour. And the worst moment was when Harriet had to go and do a reception for like high value donors. It was at City Hall. It was in a beautiful room. It was dressed beautifully. The champagne was out and it was meant to be like a big victory party. And we arrived and the TV screens just saw about four Scottish MPs lose their seats, like Jim Murphy, Douglas Alexander. And the atmosphere was funereal in there. This oh. poor bar staff going, any more champagne? Fuck off. Like, <laughs> oh, it God. Horrific. And then coming back to Labour HQ and it was just, it was a big party organised upstairs for like, you know, um, staffers, their partners. And again, you know, it went from like Russ Abbott, what an atmosphere. (laughs) 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 To literally like, it was just like, oh my God. And then the pièce de résistance, we're all like, we're all just like this. Everyone, people who aren't, you don't even smoke are smoking. Like it was horrendous, absolutely. People are just, there are people just crying everywhere. Um, there are a few people still going, mainly from the press office, going, style it out, stay confident, body language is really important. The night is young. It's like, it's, it's not young. Then Ed Balls losing his seat was just the most, that was just the final. And then, but the, the thing was so weird, Matt, is that everything happened so quickly. So Ed just made the decision very quickly, very decisively, at about five, six in the morning, that was it. He was done, out, gone. And Harriet rang me and said, so most people were just getting absolutely wasted and crying a lot. And Harriet, she she had sort of just like, I think, nipped back for like five minutes, 10 minutes, just quiet time. And she rang me and she said, we're going to have a really long day. And I was like, well, no, because we've lost and I'm going to get really... I'm going to get me drunk and just, you know, go off and be with everybody. She's like, no, you're not because Ed's resigning and I'm going to have to take over as acting leader. So you're going to have to start, don't tell anybody, but you're going to have to start getting together. You're going to have to be my chief of staff and you're going to have to start pulling together a whole plan of what we do. He's going to make a speech. 
he's going to resign. I'm going to take over. We're going to have to call a meeting with the key members of the NEC straight away. We're going to have to work out a timetable. We're going to have to start planning for the, the day after. So I think I was too caught up with the, just the sheer panic of, oh, my God, we've got a big job to do. So I knew, so obviously I knew Ed was resigning before a lot of people, other people did. I went to his speech. It was, it was kind of really, it was awful seeing him resign, but I just felt, I just felt so anxious about what lay ahead because people were so upset and angry. And, you know, I was conscious that how were we going to try and keep the party together and functional? Cause the next few days were going to be really, really critical in terms of the leadership contest, you know, you could already see people positioning as well as soon as, you know, word was out that, that Ed was sort of leaving. So I, I have got some photographs of this somewhere. I remember when he eventually, when he did make his, you know, very sad speech, resigned, everyone just came back to the office, grabbed their bags and just went straight to the pub. Everybody, the entire office just went to the pub. And apart from me, Harriet, Rosie Winterton, um, who was the chief, uh, shadow chief whip, um, Gary and Luke from her team, who are absolutely brilliant, Gary Follis and Luca Sullivan. Luca Sullivan is now the political secretary. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, some of Harriet's team. Um, I think Emily Oldno as well, who was one of the kind of key staffers, and Ian McNichol. And we just basically, while everybody just went off and we just had to sit in this wreckage of an empty building with like party streamers and bottles of booze everywhere. It was like a sort of, it was like the metaphor, the optical metaphor of just like the wreckage. The, and also the building was falling apart as well. The actual built, or you could smell it was like sewage at one point. Oh. <laughs> it was like the building, which it's like the metaphor the physical manifestation of the decline of the Labour Party at that point. Not only was I remember Neil Kinnock coming from it, he's like, "Why can I just smell shit everywhere?" And I was like, "Sorry, it's not Pakistani. It's a really bad accent." He's like, "That is just it was." Just, and do you know the worst thing about that building? Brewers Green. We used to call it Brewers Droop. Like that is like they kind of became a sort of metaphor. The person who opened that building to great fanfare was Ansang Suji. <laughs> Who's now like wanted for like genocide? Yeah, that didn't age well. Did that really? But also, when she was coming to do the visit to Oprah, we're having this really thick of it and um, planning meeting where one one former um, shadow cabinet minister who will re remain nameless went, "We something like, do you think she'll really want to come and do this visit?" He went, "Oh, she'll watch. She's not been out for a long time. I think she'll." <laughs> oh boy. So anyway, the whole thing was just awful, and we just had to pick up the pieces and just kind of carry on while everyone was getting incredibly drunk. Um, and I have to say, like, I think women don't really make it into the history books about politics much. Certainly but not in Harriet, the Labour Party. Certainly not in the Labour Harriet Harman and Rosie Winterton did such an amazing job. Like, they just put their shoulder to the wheel. Well, every, and also Harriet gave me, I mean, Harriet was it's so amazing. She's hard as nails. I'm like falling apart. And at one point, very emotional. She just was like, get yourself together, go into the loo, wash your face, sort yourself out, come back, get it together because we've got a big job to do now. We have got to be there for the 
and it was like the kind of metaphorical kind of slap across the face, but I kind of needed it. So were you properly in pieces at that point then? I was because, you know, I just, you know, you put, you know, and you know this yourself, Matt, having been a sort of staff, you, it's not just a day job, it's your life. You know, you put everything into it. You don't see your family, you don't see your friends, you don't see your partner. You, you, you put everything into it. And you, you have to believe that you have a really good shot at winning. Otherwise, why would you get up at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning every day and, and go to bed at like, you know, one o'clock? Why would you, why would you do that if you didn't really believe that what you were doing was, was right and that you sort of had a, a decent chance? So, yeah, it was just, I did feel very, I did, I just, it was just so, as I said, I think it was the prolonged brutality of the whole night from the exit poll to watching Scotland crumble to... Ed Balls losing his seat, like so many good MPs losing their seat and the kind of dawning reality of, of actually just what lay ahead for the party as well. Because I think that's the other thing. In that moment, I sort of knew as well, like, God, something's going to go really badly wrong for the party now. And you were right. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, me to be right. What, so what were those years like then? Because you had, in a way, a, a very pragmatic introduction to the Labour Party. You, you weren't coming from a, a, an ideological wing initially. And then you end up deeply involved, deeply emotional about the fate of this group of people and, and what it stands for. Then the Corbyn years happen, and a lot of people who probably were way more ideological than you initially leave, and you don't. Were you ever tempted to get out of Dodge? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I just really wanted to get the chance to go back to Milton Keynes. You know, I think that was, that was, that was, didn't want to give up on that dream, Matt. Yeah. Um, do you know, no, I, I, I didn't. And I think the thing for me is being a, an immigrant, I never felt I had really belonged. In Labour? or you know, in, in, so in kind of society, until I really, until I sort of got involved in the Labour Party, I, for, for the first time in my life, felt kinship. Like I felt I was part of something bigger than just me and my, my, my small family in this country. And that felt really amazing. I felt part of, of a family. I felt part of a tribe. I suddenly got what it must feel like to just be part of something really, really big that you have this emotional connection to like a family I think that's the thing because I don't really have any family in this country it was the closest thing I ever felt to, to being part of a big big family and I could see that there was like always going to be you know amazing moments with this family but also a lot of conflict a lot of drama a lot of beef a lot of East End do, 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 do. I mean that is what it's like being part of a, a big family so I think I had this quite sort of romanticized view but it was also really important to me because I, I kind of felt like it, it took me a long time to find this tribe that accepted me and I and I and I feel like I found this tribe through a good journey not just because it was like you know through working with with sort of good people and and very much aligned to my to my values so I kind of figured that once I was in I was in and that I had a duty to even when things were really really bad try and fight for the for the family that I loved and, and knew and, and wanted to kind of bring bring back again. And also, uh, what, one of the things that I was learning about the Labour Party, I loved the diversity 
of views and opinions. So when I was like a special advisor, and even when I was like a civil servant, I loved all the, like I loved all the meetings with obviously like you know the, the I suppose the, the business side of things. And I remember I had worked in business as well, so I had quite a pragmatic view on business and stuff. But I absolutely loved all the characters from the more left of the party, you know, the, the trade unionists who'd like cut their teeth on great causes. A lot of them were brilliant orators. They had amazing stories, like great chat. I love all the brilliant firebrand campaigners on the left of the party. So for me, I sort of loved, I loved the characters of the left as much as I love the character. I love characters. And I think that's what, that's what a big family has. It's got big, loud, noisy characters. Sometimes they clash, but ultimately we're family. Ultimately, like, you know, we've got to, <laughs> you know, come, come back, come back. That was, so that's why during the Corbyn years, even though, oh my God, it was horrific. And I got just so much abuse, like all the time. Um, ironically, so I, so I used to get called like, you know, a, a left wing kind of nut job, a feminazi Marxist nut job by people who are on the right in the party. And now on the left of the party, I was being called you're somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, all this. Stuff. So I kind of figured like I'm proper kind of centrist aunt. I really am sort of like <laughs> right in right in the middle. So, you know, I often get kind of told, oh, you're this wing of the party you're that wing of the party. I just want. I want a bold, bright, strong, winning Labour Party. But I don't want a bland Labour Party, Matt. I don't want just one ideology dominating. I think there should be vivid colours in the Labour Party. You've got to have a strong left and you do have to have a strong right. That is where you kind of do your deals and you 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 kind of get things Right. And I think the Labour Party will be a, a bland. You don't want the Labour Party to be bland. Like you look at the Tory party, which is now just very homogenous in terms of, and it doesn't go so well. Like you do need to have that sort of variety. And I always used to love, you know, going to some of those kind of, I mean, slightly mad. Let's be, I mean, it's like when you go to conference, right? You don't want it to just be, you don't want it to be going to like a commercial business conference. You don't want to have your firebrand people. You do want to go and like meet all the kind of great characters and hear the stories and all. And you want a little bit of, of, of drama. That is, you want it to be slightly messy, not too messy, but a bit of a, you want it to be a bit of a hot mess. A <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, I think it definitely delivers on all those things. <laughs> um, so for you then, thinking about your, your identity, and, and how important your immigrant identity is to you. How big a deal was it to get an MBE? It was such a big deal. It was a really, really special moment because um, it was nice to get recognised, but it was, it was more for my parents. It was just so lovely because for them, it was basically, it now makes up with the fact that I'm not married to a doctor and I don't have any children. <laughs> So I feel like it's kind of put money in the bank for me with my parents. But it, it was so nice. It was just such a special day because they came down from Scotland. My brother came down too. It was so lovely to go to the to the palace. My mum wore a beautiful sari and they were so over the, the moon. And the day itself was absolutely lovely. There was like a lovely, we had really nice lunch afterwards. We had like a reception. Basically, it was like the wedding I'll never have. And it was like a really good it really was. It was like my wedding day. 
and Neil Kinnock did this, Neil Kinnock like almost did like my sort of like dad speech basically Neil Kinnock did a brilliant rambling speech and had this lovely joint party with Greg Cook another brilliant brilliant guy from the Labour Party it was like Greg and I were getting married basically <laughs> <laughs> Greg's going to be absolutely horrified at that sorry Greg if you're listening and that's giving you the book sorry um, but uh, it was just so nice it was so lovely but for my parents I think it just meant the absolute world to them particularly you know, because they came from, you know, such humble beginnings, you know, for my mum as well. My mum got an arranged marriage to my dad at like when she was like 19. Like she, she had to marry this man she didn't even know and like 50 years later still doesn't know to be to be absolutely like, you know, she's sort of like, just, it was so, and my dad, you know, my blessing, my dad was so sweet because, you know, he's he's getting on a bit now and his English is like, it's, it's, it's fine, but it's like never been sort of great you know he's just like I can't believe I came here with you know the five pounds in my pocket he came to Liverpool to start off with and he's like and here we are you know have we're at the palace for you it was a really nice day it was lovely and but my because... mum still wishes I was married to a doctor <laughs> I mean it's everything you've done you've made a success of you were a successful stand-up comedian successful civil servant, um successful political advisor you're now a successful economist and broadcaster and everything else. What is it that you want to do? I know that you don't have a grand plan. You've done all these things, but you've been really successful at them all. Do you want to go into elected politics ever, do you think? Oh, I, t- I kind of, I think I sort of, I kind of ebb and flow on, on this. At the moment, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I act absolutely love 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 broadcasting I love having my show on times radio it's I've always wanted to have a radio show and this is like my kind of perfect radio show I get to sort of talk about what I want so much kind of politics bit of comedy arts lots of kind of different things I also sort of feel that I mean maybe this will change but definitely through the Corbyn years I felt it was I felt very lucky to have a voice sort of outside of elected politics. So I think a lot of elected politicians are actually very hemmed in by what they can and cannot see. And you and I both know that there are some politicians who are really brave and they do speak out about how they feel, but they often pay a very, very heavy price for that from their own uh, constituents, from their own members of their party. They often you know, don't get the, the, the promotions. So I, I just sort of felt like... It, I felt that it was good to be able to find a voice totally freely, sort of not constrained by by anything. But as I get older, I do, you know, and and having stepped away from being sort of really, really involved in Labour politics, having a strong Labour Party is so important to everybody. Like, you know, a strong Labour opposition, whether you vote Labour, whether you support Labour, if you want good government, you should support having a strong opposition. And I do look at what is happening in politics on a broader level, and I I am very, very troubled about it. I think some of the things that the government is doing, particularly around public appointments in terms... Look, Labour also put in a lot of people, you know, that they liked into into positions of public, um, public appointments. But there is a bit of a dismantling of structures and pulling uh, uh, threads, which I I think is very, very worrying if you do care about these kind of 
democratic thing. So sometimes I do think, gosh, actually, maybe if you do care about these things, you have a duty to actually get on the, the pitch. Because as, as we know, look, we have quite a nice life where we get to be the sort of armchair general and we get to be the kind of commentator and, and have a bit of a laugh about what's going on. That is much easier than actually doing it and, and trying to sort of make change. And I always have to remind myself, I think it's very easy to, but not for you, but just to be really like snarky about all politicians and post David Amos, we had a bit of a moment where we were like, actually, we should remember that what they do is actually pretty, you know, good politicians work really, really hard. And it's it's more difficult to actually make change than just commentate about people failing to make change. And sometimes I do think, you know, actually it would be great to be part of that again. So I, I probably wouldn't completely rule it out, but I think for the time being, I am very, very happy doing what I'm doing and I actually think I have got a decent platform and I have got a good good range of platforms where I can make my opinion clear because everybody knows that I'm was part of the Labour Party I'm still a Labour Party member I can be a I'm not I don't shy away from criticizing the the Labour Party I mean, it was very very critical of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn I have been critical um under Keir Starmer um, but I think Keir Starmer is bringing the party back to health. I mean, we just had this reshuffle. I don't know what you thought about the reshuffle. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, absolutely, yes. I think, uh, the, uh, I mean, a, a promotion for Yvette Cooper and Pat McFadden and West Streeting uh, is always going to be good news, I think, for the Labour Party. They are very, very talented people. But people listening to this... When you think about all the things we've talked about in this conversation, about Labour needing big characters, uh, personalities, thoughtful, intelligent people who can also use levity, um, people from different backgrounds. Matt, you, are you going to be an MP? No, God, no. You should be, is what I'm saying. There'll be, there'll be people <laughs> listening saying, how are you not in Parliament already? To be fair, I did try like three times. <laughs> my poor dad and my best friend from Scotland poodling me around all these places, me knocking doors going, hi, I'd like to be the Labour candidate. Fuck off, I'm voting for the union candidate and slamming the door in my face. <laughs> so I did try, to be fair, like three times. And I kind of thought maybe, you know, maybe the universe is telling me something. Although when I did try, I did want to get elected, selected in Scotland. That was in the run-up to the 2010 general election campaign. And you could just see the beginning of that wave of nationalism. Because yes. I did used to get a lot of, um, but you're not really Scottish. And I was like, um, what do you think that could allude to? And I did have yeah. someone say to me, I know, I, know, I know you say you're Scottish, but where are your grandparents buried? Where's, where's all your family buried? Like, are they buried in the local churchyard? And I was like, nope. Um, they're buried millions of miles away in a place called Assam. So I don't know. I felt there was a lot of nationalism creeping up at the time when I was trying to get selected. But never say never. Maybe in the future. Who knows? Um, and if that does happen, you've got to come and campaign for me, Matt. Well, it depends who you're standing against. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. If it's Tom Tugendhat or some Tory that I get on with. <laughs> Who knows? Just get a safe seat. Make everyone's life easier. I'm sure there are Labour people listening who can figure that out for you. Of course, I would always support your campaign, Aisha. Yeah, I think but I don't think anything. I, do, I don't think anything like that for the top, for the for the foreseeable future because I'm very happy doing what I'm doing and uh, having a fun time on brilliant podcasts like this. Aisha, this has been an absolute pleasure. There is a load more stuff I wanted to ask you about, so hopefully, you can come back on at some point in the not too distant future. I would love that, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure. Cheers, mate. 
Well, there you go. Aisha Hazarika. Absolutely worth the wait. And that stuff about 2015. Oh, my word. I mean, you could see the office. You know, some people can really paint a picture. And Aisha can absolutely do that so well. I could see the, the kind of <laughs> the blue tack sagging on the wall. I could see the, the acrid red wine, the sandwiches uneaten. You know, I could feel that desolate landscape so clearly. And it's something that uh, I think, well, I think if you, <laughs> you can understand what it might feel like, but there is nothing bleaker than working so hard towards an election and losing it. It is terrible, whether it's a by-election, a local election, but to be absolutely on the inside as Aisha was at that time in a senior position on a night where you think literally everything's going to happen apart from the thing that happens, that is very hard to come to terms with. And of course, you're forced to come to terms with that quickly and in public. I mean, my word. I, I, she handled it all so well. That's what's amazing about it. I mean, these are the sort of things that... It's just like a, a, a hellish nightmare for most people having to go through something like that. But what an incredible... Um, amazing story that was and so many great stories and so many things we didn't get to talk about and I know that's often the case but Aisha is such a fantastic talker and her Times Radio show is superb as his as is rather her um evening standard column so follow Aisha on Twitter follow her work and who knows one day depending on where you live you might get to vote for her, but she would be absolutely, you know, at a time when, obviously there's been a Labour reshuffle uh, this week, on the week that this had been recorded, promoting uh, big stars like Peter Carl, West Streeting, uh, Pat McFadden, Yvette Cooper. You could absolutely see Aisha in the shadow cabinet, at the dispatch box, and all those things she talks about, she's got all those attributes. Imagine her holding Pretty Patel, or uh, Sajid Javid, or... Um, Dominic Raab to account or indeed Boris Johnson who knows what the future holds what a fantastic guest what a fantastic show thank you so much for downloading this please share it wide tell all your friends leave a review and buy tickets to the live shows mattford.com slash live and I'll see you soon ta Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.